Grace to you and peace from God the Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Well, welcome back and all that stuff. Let's begin with a little liturgical trivia. If Christmas occurs on a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, you will have a second Sunday after Christmas. Otherwise not. That'll be about four times in every seven years, not accounting for the effects of leap years. The gospel for the second Sunday after Christmas is the account of the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple in all three series of the three-year lectionary. It's one of those stories which, in my view, is susceptible to the contempt bred by familiarity. The easiest part of the text to homileticize always seemed to me to be Luke 2.52, about Jesus growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. I made up my mind that this time I was going to force myself to preach on some other part of this narrative. So, caveat auditor, let the hearer beware. At least this homily will offer you the possibility of discussing something else for the rest of the day than what I did on Christmas break. Here's the first part of the text I want to treat, verse 46. And after three days they found him, Jesus, in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers and listening to them and asking them questions. How would you characterize the activities in which Jesus is engaged when his parents find him? He's in the midst of teachers where he is listening and asking questions. The word for listening is one of the earliest ones we learn in elementary Greek, akuo, which seems to encompass a range of meaning from an almost passive hearing, some noise strikes our ears, to an attentive and active listening. The latter word makes more sense, or the latter meaning makes more sense in conjunction with the activity of asking questions. These actions are described with participles, present ones at that. So even if according to his divinity the Son knows it all, his omniscience is cloaked in his human nature. The human Jesus exhibits, it seems to me, curiosity. He wants to hear, which is also to say he wants to learn. Near the end of the narrative, the boy Jesus will return to Nazareth with his parents and submit himself to them. But here already he has shown respect, submitted himself to the authority of teachers. From this first perspective, we see only that a conversation is taking place. Jesus and the teachers are speaking and listening, asking and answering questions. Now let's take a look from a different point of view, verse 47. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his responses. Here the evangelist uses nouns instead of participles. Actions of understanding and responding are involved, but our focus is shifted in the first place to the reaction of those with whom we stand as observers of this conversation but above all to the consequences or results of the conversation rather than on the activities of the conversation. The first product of the conversation is understanding. Whatever has been the topic of this conversation, Jesus gets it. Once again, however, Luke pairs up this product 
with another, complementary one. Jesus gives responses or answers. I might be treading on thin Greek ice, but if there's something to Greeks' inclination to enlarge the meaning of what I'll dare to call basic verbs by adding prefixes, here, apo plus krino, the resulting noun here suggests, or I infer, that the answers Jesus gives derive clearly from his understanding. They are reasoned out, not just blurted. Jesus' answers take on the nature of explanations, and they reveal his understanding, and his onlookers are impressed. Now, I hope that copies of Reporter, the LCMS newspaper for leaders, are still made available outside the bookstore. The January 2009 issue includes the insert from the Board for Pastoral Education, titled, get this, Pastoral Education. In his introductory article titled, The Formation of Pastor Theologians, Dr. Glenn Thomas, the executive director for the BPE, wonders whether the theologian part of pastor theologian evokes a negative reaction. He writes, perhaps you think of a theologian as someone who knows little about the practical realities of life, someone who uses theological jargon that is incomprehensible to most people, someone who answers questions no one is asking. You might even hear someone lament, we don't need more theologians, we need more pastors. Now, I suspect you've heard such comments and perhaps even voiced them yourselves. However else we try to summarize what we do at the seminary, pastoral education and deaconess studies, theological education, ministerial formation, even advanced studies, everything we do involves, or should involve, the activities we've observed in this morning's text. You sit among teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And the goal is, it really is, that you get it. The aim is understanding, but not understanding as an end in itself. The aim is understanding with an accompanying ability to answer, to respond, to explain, to carry on the conversation with others, specifically with those whom you will serve, teach, and carry out whatever are the responsibilities of your ministry. The question that remains is, what is it? What were Jesus and the teachers discussing? Luke doesn't appear to tell us, at least not directly. But I think the identity of it is to be found in Jesus' reply when his parents ask why he has stayed behind. Don't you know, he asks that in the something, there is no noun, the article just dangles here, in the somethings of my father, it is necessary for me to be. You know the familiar ways of filling in that something, in my father's house, about my father's business, and perhaps a few other possibilities have been put forward. But to put it somewhat glibly, Jesus knows that it is necessary for him to be in his father's stuff. Whatever it is that pertains to his father, that's where or in what he is to be. In 2007, a book by Pope Benedict XVI 
appeared, might have been his first as Pope, which he described as an expression of my personal search for the face of the Lord. I saw the book titled Jesus of Nazareth first in an advertisement that contained a brief excerpt that captured my imagination. I've only begun to read it, but I found the part cited in the ad. In the chapter on the temptations of Jesus, Benedict roots what he regards as a fundamental problem in how people understand Jesus in the third temptation. The devil's offer to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth if he will bow down and worship him. Benedict writes that the interpretation of Christianity as a recipe for progress and the proclamation of universal prosperity as the real goal of all religions, including Christianity, is the modern form of the same temptation. It appears in the guise of a question, what did Jesus bring then if he didn't usher in a better world? In other words, what kind of savior is Jesus? He repeats the question a couple of pages later and then answers it. What did Jesus actually bring, if not world peace, universal prosperity, and a better world? What has he brought? The answer is very simple. He says, God. He has brought God. He has brought the God who formerly unveiled his countenance gradually, first to Abraham, then to Moses and the prophets, and then in the wisdom literature. It is this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the true God whom he has brought to the nations of the earth. He has brought God, and now we know his face. Now we can call upon him. Whatever might have been the specific topics of conversation between Jesus and the teachers in the temple, they were at heart father stuff. And because they were father stuff, they are God stuff. We don't encounter any specifically stated doctrines in this episode, though two kinds of righteousness are illustrated. Nevertheless, Jesus already is bringing God and people are amazed. The word Luke uses here for this amazement doesn't appear to be part of the usual stable of words used to describe people's reactions to the miracles and teaching of Jesus, reactions we encounter throughout the epiphany season. The word here seems to signify not simply a reaction, but an involvement, even an incorporation of the people. Jesus brings God to them and they are overcome and absorbed by that good news. Jesus brings God to me and I, in the experience of God that he brings, I am overcome. God's stuff is theology, you see. You just can't be a pastor or deaconess, or teacher, or leader without it. Now, here is where you sit and listen and ask, and I pray where you understand and begin to respond. Because your ministry will take place in the same way. People will sit and listen and ask. And you will want them to understand and be able to respond. And it is necessary, it is fitting, that you bring them only one thing, God. Yesterday's Beetle Bailey comic strip began with Sergeant Lug 
telling Sarge that her cat, Bella, would like to live with him. Sarge recognizes that Sergeant Lug would like to get married, but he's not sure. He wanders around the camp, reflecting on what marriage would entail and how he can answer her. In the last frame, presumably after some elapsed time, he meets up again with Sergeant Lug and just blurts out, I'd make a lousy husband. I admit that often it takes me more time to arrive at what I want to be a proper answer to a question or remark. I've heard pastors say that ministry, or at least their ministry, is all about relationships, and I've wondered how best to respond. Today's text reminds me what my answer is. I will grant that relationships are important in ministry. You won't get far with people if you act like a cement head. But that still is not what ministry is all about. Ministry, yours and mine, is about bringing God in Christ. Bring it. Bring him.